Today's Old Testament lesson is a selection of Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort, no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who all already were dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The fool finds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who was no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they, are have, they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king with, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Turn with me, if you can, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, we're continuing our series called The Quest for Wisdom. And last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, Kohelet was trying to teach us about the purpose of time because he is on this journey um, observing all of the suffering and the dysfunction and the disappointment of life, the pain of life. He's experiencing it, he's seeing it in others, and it's making him highly discouraged. He's trying to make sense of it. I mean, it's the ultimate question. You know, how does a good God allow suffering and evil? How do we reconcile those two things? How do we make sense of the injustice that we witness and we see on the news and that we see on social media? And he is witness to these atrocities and these um, oppressions, as he talks about here, And he's going on this journey, and he's trying to make sense of it all, and he's wondering if life is even worth living. But as as we see, as we saw last week in Ecclesiastes 3, he's saying there's a time for everything. He's discovering there's a time for suffering. There's a time for rejoicing. There's a time for hurting. And there's a time for healing. And he's seeing that in relationship to God, that's the only way that he can make any sense of of the world around him. 
that if he doesn't have a relationship apart from relationship with God, that none of us could ever even begin to understand why the world works the way it does, why your life has been the way that it is. And what he said that was so important in chapter 3 was that all of the pieces of your life, although scattered out, look random and you don't know the purpose of each one, that God in His sovereignty and providence uses time as a hammer to put each experience you've had into perfect place to form the project that is your life. And it is a beautiful project because it's in God's hand and that we can trust that. And in trusting that, we can begin to trust Him to make sense of our own brokenness in the world around us. And this week, Kohelet in chapter 4 is really revealing another profound discovery that he's made about how, again, this is the wisdom literature, this is about how wise people, people who trust God, who look to God as the source of their wisdom to understand life, this is how they think, this is how they live, this is the path that they walk. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let me pray for us as we continue this journey following Kohelet as our guide. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for guides along the path. Lord, you have there's these many different authors of Scripture with many different experiences. Lord, it's amazing how you've woven together one singular story in the Scriptures from so many different people writing in such a vast array of time. Again, we see how you are able to, by your sovereignty and grace, to weave things together into a beautiful tapestry that we don't even fully realize or understand. Pray for those in this room who have been trusting in themselves or the vices of this world, that this would be a morning where they could feel the freedom to surrender, to lay those things down, and to find rest at your feet, to find wisdom and understanding about their own lives. Lord, we know that this can only happen by the power of your Spirit. And we ask your Spirit, please work in our hearts for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said earlier, um, I just returned from the the Battle for Men's Hearts retreat. I think the last time I went on the retreat, the the sermon uh, ended up also being a time to just really share about that experience. And uh, by God's providence, chapter 4, I actually wrote a sermon um, and then yesterday I just highlighted the whole thing in Word and deleted it and just started writing again because I really wanted to use it as an opportunity to share what I experienced this um, past weekend, which was really profound for me uh, and transformative. Battle for men's, men's and women's hearts, just so you know, many of you all have been through this experience, but some of you all haven't. We believe at Flat Rock that it is one of the, one of the most effective tools for teaching us what it means to follow Jesus in community and to lean in on and trust, as Daniel and Emery were talking about, to trust what it is to do life with other people and how in our culture we're always tempted to move towards isolation, that the gospel is calling us towards community. That's why we need the church. That's why we planted this church, so people would begin to experience that. And Battle for the Heart teaches us to understand life at a deep heart level and what God is doing, the desires that he's given us and the things that we want and how he's using those desires um, ultimately to draw us 
to Himself because the ultimate desire within each of us is a desire for home, desire for rest, desire for shalom, for peace. That can only happen in relationship with God. And it really, what it does, one, one person described it this weekend, is laying a foundation for the Holy Spirit to transform your heart. That's what it does. It's, there's a lot of great tools for discipleship, a lot of great retreats you can go on. Um, this is one that's been highly effective for us. And so with that said, I w- if you haven't been, I, it, this is a plug. I mean, it is a shameless plug. Like, I would really encourage you to go uh, and have this experience together. There's retreats all throughout the year. And if you ever want to go or you're interested in that, um, you can talk to us and we'll point you in the right direction. There's other people in the room. I know the Hodges have experienced this and they would be great to talk to uh, for a testimony as well. Um, I think the experience was a good reminder for me, and it, one of the, the, the framework that the, the founder of Battle, his name's Larry Bolden, has put together, just, it's really refreshing because it, it's a great framework for the whole of Scripture, and then understanding your place in that, that grand narrative of redemption that we call, call it. And he talks about, you being given a unique part to play in that story that only you can play, and God is calling you out in courage and in faith to play that part. And if you feel lost in your own life and you're wondering, what's my, what's, you know, we taught, we watch a, a clip from Dead Poet Society where Robin Williams talks about the verse that we contribute. Um, and it's, battle is helping you understand what's the verse that God has given you to contribute through your work, through your family, through your relationships. And this past year, I've been through um, some particularly painful and really humbling relational challenges. And I was bringing all of that baggage into this weekend, and I was really hurting. I was feeling, as a pastor, more vulnerable (laughs) and desperate than I've ever felt as a pastor. I felt deeply insecure I didn't know what I could share with the people in my group. I mean, I'm the pastor of the church and bringing people. I had four guys in my group. We had 13 guys from Flat Rock. And I'm trying to figure out what can I share, what can I not share. Um, and the main breakthrough that I had this weekend, as I took a leap of faith to really just open up with these guys in confidence, in brotherhood, I really discovered a tremendous breakthrough of healing for me. And perspective. And so I just want to share that with you and then talk about how it relates to Ecclesiastes 4. What I discovered this weekend is that I am an affirmation junkie. I live for your approval of me. And everyone in my life I have used to make myself feel better about me because I'm so insecure about it. From every sermon I preach, to planting an entire church. I need to repent to you all and ask for your forgiveness because I have used you to affirm me. And what I discovered this weekend is that's wrong. I can't live like that anymore. And the reason that I do that any of us does that, is because we haven't experienced the validation of the Father. I discovered that in order to really be able to receive affirmations, you see, your affirmation that I want, the affirmation that I want from my wife, 
It's like a meteor bouncing off Earth and getting eaten up in the atmosphere. Your affirmation, because I am insecure about the validation I have from God, it's being His Son in whom He is delighted and pleased, your affirmation, I can't get enough of it because it doesn't ever sink in. I can act like I can receive it, but I can't. And so what I've had to do this weekend (laughs) through long runs in the woods and a lot of tears, I've had to ask God to validate me. So I long for that. I long for him to say, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And I think when I can do that and I can receive that, then I can receive your affirmation. But not only can I receive your affirmation for what it is, I can also receive your criticism because it doesn't define me. And people can come and go in this church and it's not personal. It's not about me. So I want to ask your forgiveness for making it about me. It's never going to work. So if you're here for me, then you're here for the wrong reasons. And the way that I've been walking, the path that I've been walking is the path that Kohelet here chooses to walk for a time to try to comfort himself. So what he's doing is he's looking out at the world and he's seeing the oppression that's happening. He's seeing people suffering. He says, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And what deepens his sadness He's saying every, it's so corrupt, the world is so corrupt in so many ways, so broken, that obviously the oppressed are hurting. But even those who are oppressing those people are hurting even worse. It's all just a cycle of hurt. And so what Kohelet does here is he walks down two different paths. And in the battle for the heart, Larry Bolden just brilliantly describes the two paths Scripture always presents to us two paths. Not 20, not 10, two. The path of humility and the path of pride. And you either walk one or the other. And most of us, well, all of us are born walking that path of pride. And so we, it's, our, it's our natural bent to deal with the disappointment of life and the struggles of this world and the path of pride. So those are my two points, um, the way of pride, the way of humility. And I want to kind of unpack uh, what these are specifically. Um, so, verses 1 through 3. Well, it says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors there was power. There was no one to comfort them. And I thought to myself, the dead who are already dead, this is a pretty dark place to go, right? The dead who are already dead are more fortunate than those who are alive. That's his conclusion. But then he takes it a step further. But better than both the dead and the living are those who have never even been born into this world. It's how sad the world, I mean, it's it's dark, it's depressing, right? 
And it's interesting that in that discouragement, he chooses to isolate. He chooses to go the way of pride because it's, it's the most natural way. Larry talks about in the way of pride, we follow that because our masculinity um, in, our, in our sin and our fallenness is toxic. He talks about toxic masculinity that is found on the way of pride. This is a, ba- a, a path that um, can be toxic both for men and also for women. So there's toxic masculinity and toxic femininity. But he, talks, he defines this as, as these, having these four characteristics. This is how you know you're walking down this path of pride and you're... you're your masculinity or femininity is being, is being corrupted. He defines it with, as a, a path full of independence, willfulness, and control over your life. So you move from one spectrum to the other in that toxic place. You either go, to, as men, we either go to a place of total dominance. We're going we're gonna to make things happen. We're going we're gonna to achieve our own happiness. We're going to grasp it and grab it, or we go to a place of just total withdrawal. The way of independence, we say, I will do what I want to do when I want to do it. Or we have willlessness and passivity, and we play the victim, and we manipulate. Or we use image management on the path of pride. I will project who I want to be or who I think you want me to be to get what I want and to protect myself from rejection. That's, that's what I like. I like that one. I use that one. Or indulgence, also a good option. I will use my gifts and talents to get what I want. Or I'll do whatever it takes to avoid pain, and I'll self-medicate. Or lastly, self-inflation. These are the four characteristics of toxic masculinity or femininity. Self-inflation. I will use whatever is at my disposal to elevate myself. I'll use my talents, my possessions. I'll use people even. And the underlying energy he talks about behind all of these is really fear and pride. We're scared. We don't know what to do. We think we can do it ourselves. We don't need God, which leads us to isolation from others and, most importantly, from God. And we see this all the time in the Bible. This is why the Bible is so refreshing. It's just full of these stories of people walking this path of pride and then being delivered from it onto the path they were meant to live, the path of humility. Abraham, what does he do? He doesn't trust God to provide. He dominates. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to take my slave girl, and I'm I'm going to create an heir tired of waiting on God. What does God do? Completely humbles him. Jacob runs from God out of his rebellion and shame, and God cripples him. Brings him to a place of humility. Moses trying to please the people in the desert. He's overwhelmed. He wants them to back off and stop making his life so difficult. And what does God do? He delivers him. He humbles him. David choosing to indulge in his lust and sleep with Bathsheba and then try and dominate by having her husband killed to cover his own sin. What does God do? He rescues him. They can't outsin his grace. They can't outrun him. All they have to do is surrender. But most of us don't. That's why God is a, a nickname I love. Is People refer to him as the hound dog of heaven. He's going to chase you down. For Kohelet, we see him choose the way of pride with two extreme choices here. If you look at verse uh, 4, it's 
says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So he sees the oppression, the sadness, the dysfunction, the suffering in the world. He says, I'm just going to dive head on into work. Give myself to my toil. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to acquire it. I'm going to achieve it. Many of us are recovering achievers in this room. A lot of men on that retreat that were like that. If we can just achieve enough and conquer, then I won't have to feel the sadness. I can, I can distract myself from it. I can medicate with it. And that's what he does, but then he discovers it only produces envy in him because it only becomes a competition. And he's consumed with even more evil and suffering caused by envy that is deep within him as he compares himself to his neighbors with the work that he does. He's just trying to be the best. And as the wise saying says, comparison is the thief of joy. So he's not finding joy there. He goes to his work as a protective strategy as we talk about in battle. It's a way to use achievement as a means to fix. Men are very guilty of this. We want to fix things. We feel like it's our birthright. We're entitled to it. We want to fix everybody. And if work doesn't work, then what Kohelet does next is he goes to the opposite extreme. And it says... The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a, is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. He's like, the work was exhausting. The work wasn't satisfying. It was consuming. I'm not going to do anything. I give up. This is kind of what retirement has become in our culture. If I can just, I'll do all the toil. I'll put in all the hours. If I can just get to that moment where I don't have to do it anymore. And then life will be better. Tomorrow it will be, will be better. And we're all using the one day that we have that we're guaranteed to secure a tomorrow that none of us have any idea if we'll have. And we're putting everything into it. And it's honorable and seen as responsible, right? In some ways it is. Planning for the future. It's a good thing. But when that is our promised land, when we think that is where we're going to experience rest, that is the path of pride. Because you think you can achieve that apart from God. You go to church, you feel like a good person, keep things under control. If I can just earn enough money, then I won't have to do anything. And Kohelet goes down that road for us. And he's saying, it's pretty strong language here, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In that idleness and in that isolation, it literally is killing his soul. You say, well, that's not the answer. So I've worked harder than anyone, and now I've given up. What do, what I, what do I do? How do I make sense of the brokenness? How do I deal with it? Where do I go? Well, he goes down the way of humility. Verse, nine, verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He's just doing it for selfish reasons and it's vanity. It's not what he's made for. But then he discovers two are better than one. 
because they have a good reward for their toil. He's discovering community. He's discovering relationship. The only way I can make sense of the world and deal with its pain is in relationship. The path of humility is surrendering myself and submitting myself to community. And later on in in, uh, Ecclesiastes, he talks about going to church. He says, I need the church. It's where I learn to fear God. It's where I learn to be vulnerable and trust others. I mean, this weekend is a great example. I, I was running, I was getting to the end of myself. And I needed a place where I could just surrender and be received in love and grace. And that only happens with those who have received love and grace. It happens in Christian community. Those who understand, as Jeff was talking about, that we're sinners. And if you don't think you are, then you call God a liar. We need a safe, hospitable place where we can be sinners together. That is the path of humility. Kohelet says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. He just longs for rest. Some of you all just long for rest. You're tired. You're exhausted. And the 80-hour work week's not fixing it. And not working all together is not fixing it. So we either seek to dominate and trying to fix it, or we don't like it, or we withdraw. We try to escape. Larry describes, Larry Bolden describes the way of humility as a posture of receiving rather than grasping and chasing. You tired of grasping and chasing? There's a better way. You can receive. It's a posture of surrender and trust, dependence, vulnerability, suffering. For some of us, death to the things that we look to. Resurrection, life, glory, intimacy. And he talks about the energy behind this being love and grace rather than fear and control. Are we creating a community here at Flat Rock of love and grace or fear and control? And I'm afraid because I'm the lead pastor that I've led it with fear and control. So what would it look like to lead with love and grace? To surrender what I need for what God wants and desires. You can pray that for me. So to walk the path of humility, you first have to receive, as I said, the validation of the Father's love. Kohelet begins to experience this in the only place that he can, that's in community. You know, a lot of people read that last verse. It says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Where do we read that verse a lot or hear that verse? What? Weddings, weddings yes, at weddings. And it, it certainly is a wonderful relationship when Jesus is at the center of your relationship and he's the foundation and the strength behind it. I get the idea. It's taking a little bit out of context here. Um, it's a good thing to do, but he's actually making a much more simple point. It's not really about... In order to deal with the pain of life, you need to go get married. That's not, that would not be the application here. Um, it is one way to enter into community, but it's not the only way. He's making a simple point. He's just saying life lived in community with others gives strength and power and protection. I mean, look what he talks about. He says, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. So you should ask yourself, who are you lifting up? 
Do you need to be lifted up? You cannot do this alone. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has no one to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. There's warmth in community. There's provision. There's rest. There's strength. And then he says there's protection. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. It's offering us not only physical protection, but spiritual protection to cover each other. We talked about that in battle. When, we're, when we expose ourselves in vulnerability to say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what my life really is like. This is the thoughts I really have. To not just leave someone in their vulnerability uncovered, but to then cover them, as Allison did uh, a couple weeks ago with Brooke. As she shared her struggles publicly. We're, are we a community that's covering each other, that's quick to do that, that's quick to encourage and offer love and grace and assurance through the gospel. That's what we were made for. That's the path of humility. Life is about relationships. It's the most important resource we have for dealing with the pain and the suffering and the brokenness of this life. And evil wants us to go it alone, wants us to go the way of pride, the most easy way, the default way. But the way of humility is the way of dependence upon others for help. It's the way of we and not me. That's what I discovered this weekend. I've been walking the way of me. It's a way of vulnerability to others and not walling up our hearts to never be hurt by anyone again. Some of us have made those vows. We've been hurt. We're not going to be hurt again. We're not going to open up like that. It's offering as a gift our vulnerability to others to let them in on the pain within us. We all have it. And so it's, it would be prideful to act like you don't have it. Like you got, you're the one who's got it all together. You figured it out. None of us have. That way of thinking you have it all together and you don't need anyone just leads to cynicism and a hard heart. And to find rest and peace, Kohelet surrenders to life and community, serving and receiving. He had been at it alone trying to get for himself, and now he discovers if I give and serve, I walk the way of humility. James chapter 4 in closing, he says, God gives grace and favor to the humble, but he opposes the proud been walking the way of pride and you're wondering, where is God? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he giving me what I desire? It's because he opposes that way. He's putting a block to it. He's, he's uh, diverting you to a better path. God will do that out of love. He will withhold things from you. He will frustrate you because he loves you. He did the same thing to me. He took me down a path of I was undone by I felt helpless, but I turned around. How did I do it? In community. (laughs) Don't overcomplicate it. You might be running down the wrong path and wondering, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. Surrender. You don't need to come up with a better to-do list and a better way to organize your day and more things that you need to accomplish. Those are good things. But that's not what's going to deliver you. It's surrender to others, and most importantly, it's surrender to God. A quote that stuck with me this weekend is perfect love from the Father. Perfect love from the Father cannot change what it cannot touch. Perfect love from the Father cannot change what it cannot touch. Some of us have walled our hearts up so securely 
that the perfect love of the Father is not touching it. And we need to find places where we can break down those barriers. And we only do that by the grace of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ who came to break down the dividing wall of hostility in our own hearts between us and God to give us freedom to be in right relationship with him, to walk that path of humility that Jesus himself walked for us. Do you believe that this morning? How is that affecting your life? How is that affecting your choices? What peace is that giving you? came across a, a, a quote that I love, and I'll just leave you with this. It's from Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you all have read that book. It's the story of Christian's perilous journey to the celestial city and through all these different obstacles that he encounters and it's you know allegory for the Christian life. And he's on the journey. He has these different guides and people that come in and out of his life to help him. And at one point, he's with his friend, his dear friend, Hopeful. And when he's with Hopeful, he finds himself in a situation where he falls into the water. The water is deep. It's raging. And he falls underneath the waters. The waters come over his head, and he screams out to his friend Hopeful. He says, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All the waves go over me. So he's freaking out. He's screaming. And what does Hopeful say to him while he's drowning? Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. That's the hope that Jesus gives us. He's felt the bottom. He stands firmly on it. And by his secure steps on this earth through the cross and through resurrection, he says, be of good cheer. I felt the bottom and it's good. It's good because it's allowed me to rescue you while you're there as well. One of my favorite memories of my life is when I almost drowned when I was 10 years old. It's the oldest sermon illustration I have. And there were flags all over the beach saying, don't go out there. My dad, being the adventurer that he is, he's like, we'll be fine. And we go out there immediately. It's 8 a.m. The undertow grabs me, takes me out, puts, puts me down, throws me 300 yards, uh, 300 feet out into the water, and I'm drowning. And I remember at 10 years old thinking, I'm going to die. And my dad ran out in that water, And with his feet anchored to the bottom, he grabbed me by the arm and ripped my whole body out of the water and put me on his shoulders and took me back to shore. And that's a beautiful picture to me of what Jesus has done, that he he has the strength of the Father to come out and to rescue us. We are not flailing. We are drowning. And by his grace, he has saved us and rescued us to bring us on this path of humility. Will you walk it? Do you want to walk it?